from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. I think what it is, is as journalists, uh, we rely on our skills and, and our, our, our bag of tools, right? And so what keeps you objective is the truth and the reality. Um, I don't have to come out here yelling about black men being killed to pull up that number and saying communities just like this, here are the disparities. Uh, here's what happens when um, you, know, you kill a white man and kill a black man and see the disparity in sentencing. We, we can go time and time again about the culture around us and speaking that truth, um, that's what frees us. That's what allows us to tell the stories without getting caught up um, in any kind of nonsense. Now it's not easy all the time because you, you will have people on either side pulling you, right? Uh, you, you'll have uh, some non-black folks who say, oh, you can't be impartial because you're black and you come from this community. You'll have some people in our community saying, we need you to tell this story this way, right? Um, but for me, I never felt so much pressure because, trust me, I can tell this story, but let the truth guide you. And the truth is that there are so many disparities in the way that we are treated um, by our fellow citizens, by the criminal justice system, um, and so forth and so on. So it's not easy to speak truth to power without having to feel swayed. Tremaine Lee, correspondent for MSNBC. In 2012, he joined NBC News and MSNBC as a national reporter, contributing online and on air for NBC News and MSNBC Digital. Lee covers social justice issues and the role of race, violence, politics, and law enforcement. Lee has earned two National Association of Black Journalists Awards, one for digital media in 2015 for its MSNBC coverage of the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, the other for its 2016 original MSNBC multimedia series, Geography of Poverty, which chronicled poverty-stricken communities nationwide, including Flint, Michigan's during the water crisis. Also, he recently earned his first Emmy in the Outstanding News Discussion and Analysis category for his reporting on gun violence in Chicago. This past midterm elections, Lee was a huge part of MSNBC's election coverage, reporting from Georgia. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, MSNBC correspondent Tremaine Lee in Black America. Well, I'll tell you what, as a primetime correspondent here, primarily with All In, and uh, coming off an Emmy win for some, some work we did in Chicago around gun violence right, and exactly. the trauma associated with it, you know, it kind of opened the door for me. Um, as much as I begrudgingly accept some of these accolades because I always want to put the focus back on the people, I know it gives me more space and a buffer to keep telling these stories. So coming out of these midterms, I want to get back out there across the country and, uh, you know, talk to people uh, in the wake of the Democrats taking the House, what that means policy-wise. Um, how does any of this change their day-to-day -day lives? I'm just looking forward to, as my mom said, keep on keeping on, right? So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Jermaine Lee has covered the good, bad, and ugly this country has to offer. First, as a Philadelphia Tribune and Tristonian, then the time Picayune where he shared a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage of Hurricane Katrina, from there, he wrote for the New York Times and the Huffington Post. In 2012, he joined NBC and MSNBC as a national reporter for the digital unit. In 2006, he was a recipient of NABJ's Emerging Journalist of the Year Award. In 2015, he was named to Ebony Magazine's Power 100 list. Based in New York, he covers race, violence, politics, and law enforcement. He regularly appears on MSNBC's primetime and weekend programming, 
which include All In with Chris Hayes. The last word was Lawrence O'Donnell and A.M. Joy. Recently in Black America spoke with Lee after his election coverage. I was born in uh, Chisler, New Jersey, South Jersey, about uh, 20 minutes outside of uh, Camden, New Jersey. Then spent a lot of time in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I went to a boarding school called the Milton Hershey School. And I understand you were a pretty prolific writer and athlete in high school? Yes, sir. Uh, I, was, I played uh, football, uh, basketball, a little baseball, track, and uh, wrote for the school yearbook. And you attended Camden County College and majored in communication studies? That's right. I started uh, I started college at uh, Shippensburg University, uh, where I played football, uh, mm-hmm. then went back home to Camden County Community College, where I earned my associates, and then went to uh, Rowan University, where I finished up my bachelor's in uh, journalism. So what sparked that initial interest in journalism? I'll tell you what, from the very beginning, I was always very curious about the world around me. Uh, and my mother, uh, you know, her favorite gift was always a book, right? So I was surrounded mm-hmm. by uh, Richard Wright and Langston Hughes, and I always wanted to be that kind of writer, right? I wanted to spill beautiful prose. But early on, I guess it was 87 or 88, um, I sat on the sofa with my mother and we watched the move bombing when the city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb mm-hmm. um, on a community, Osage Avenue. And right. it kind of brought everything together, even at a young age, that there were very big, important things happening all around me. And that kind of just fed my uh, curiosity about the world around me, uh, but also wanting to, to voice something about what I was seeing in the world around me. I understand that you work for the Time Picking You? Yes, sir, uh, in New Orleans. That was uh, pretty early in my career. Um, I started off in the black press at the uh, Philadelphia Tribune, mm-hmm. uh, and then I went to the Trentonian newspaper in Trent, New Jersey, and then uh, just a few months before Hurricane Katrina, found my way to New Orleans and the Times Picking You. And yet, work for the Amsterdam News, of course. A, well, a, a little bit. The Amsterdam News, uh, just superficially through friends, but the the Philadelphia Tribune, you know, which is near and dear to my heart, got my my first uh, professional job uh, was at the the Philadelphia Tribune, which um, I believe is still the the longest continuously publishing black newspaper in the country. Let's go back to the time picking you <clears throat> when you covered Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Give us a backstage account of what you witnessed during that period. You know, I, I like to say that I had always been a reporter and a writer, um, and for years before then was kind of cutting my teeth. Uh, but I became a journalist uh, in New Orleans at the Times-Picayune. Uh, when Katrina hit, you know, uh, I could have never expected things to go the way they went. Mm-hmm. I can remember a day or two before the storm hit, uh, watching it on the news, and the hurricane seemed to stretch to the entire length of the Gulf of Mexico, right? Starting in, in Florida and, and, and touching Texas. It was mm-hmm. huge. And then the hours after the, the storm hit and the levees broke uh, and the water started to rise around New Orleans, uh, I was out in the water and I saw the people um, scrambling from their homes, the desperation on, on folks who had been separated from their families. There were so many encounters with people that really brought home just how serious this was. I mean, people were, were trapped in attics, bodies floating, um, children um, in, in need of, of help and care, old folks needing medicine. I saw the worst of, of people when you see police officers looting. Come to find out, um, early 
in, in those early days, people telling me, saying, hey, man, like the police are shooting people, right? And they're vigilantes. And, and we didn't have much to go by at that point because 80% of the city was underwater. But come to find out in the coming years that police officers indeed had killed some people and shot some people. Vigilantes had indeed uh, taken aim at black folks. It, it was just as if the bottom of society had fallen out and it was every man for themselves. And to be a journalist at that point, you know, being sure to tell those stories of those people, those black folks, especially mm-hmm. in the most marginalized communities, um, what they were going through, the Superdome, being turned away uh, by armed guards, uh, being treated as criminals um, and refugees when, in fact, they were seeking safety in their own city. Um, to see uh, city and state government collapsing, to see the flyover by uh, George Bush um, taking, taking stock of what had happened. It was really just a terrible scene. But on the other hand, I always go back to the faith and hope and strength in the community. Um, the, the young men who they would call thugs with, with locks in their hair and their pants hanging down were the ones breaking the pharmacies getting medicine for old folks. They were the ones going to get uh, boats to rescue people you know, when they could. Um, so really a, a tale of, of two cities. Um, it was at once horrifying and terrible, but in many ways, um, in the midst of all that desperation, it was really quite inspiring. You had an opportunity to evacuate, but you chose to stay. Why? That's right. Uh, as, a, as a young journalist at that point, um, my family was all back in, in Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I could take care of myself, and I thought it was important that I stay there uh, to tell that story. Um, there's no way I could have left um, when so many other people were stuck in that city um, and not be able to tell that story. You know, I had been in New Orleans just a few months, uh, and I was a police and crime reporter. So I spent a lot of time in this street and a lot of time in these communities that were uh, most decimated and devastated. And I did indeed feel a connection to those those communities and those people. And to me as a journalist, we're supposed to go to those places that are dark. We're supposed to go to those places uh, where people are crying, where where people are silenced and tell their story. So there was no way I was going to leave ahead of the storm. You spent four years at the New York Times. Tell us about that experience. The New York Times was an interesting experience. I, I learned so much um, from having been there, uh, but it was a bit of a culture shock. You know, um, mm-hmm. up until that point, <laughs> I was just a young star. I was right. doing it. You know, I was running and gunning, and to get there and it's big. You know, and even when you talk to the folks who have been around the block and everyone is super talented, it's like, what what am I doing here? <laughs> how do I how do how do I actually operate in this space um, without the psychological pressure uh, weighing you down too much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being in that space and looking around and not seeing too many people of color, um, certainly not men of color. And so, you know, I'm not from a place where people have uh, white collar jobs and in and, and newsrooms and journalism and professionals, right? So I'm still figuring out how do I move in these spaces. Right. Besides just my journalism, it's like how do I actually operate with these folks? <laughs> how, mm-hmm. how do I do it? So, so I came out a better journalist, but it was tough at times. But also, you, you, know, you are surrounded by some of the best in the business. And, and to this day, the New York Times is, the, is you know, the best, if not one of the best, news-gathering operations in the country. But it's, it's the big, big time. It's like playing for the Yankees. It, it, can, be, it can be tough <laughs> to find your groove. I or, I, or, or I should say, like the like the Eagles or the Phillies. I Let me say that. <laughs> After that, the Huffington Post, you covered national issues that impacted the African American community. That's right. That was that was my first opportunity um, coming from the Times, um, where they were really just building out their team. So they hired mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people from the New York Times. Um, I was finally a senior reporter, and it, it almost felt like, not to say anything disparagingly, but the handcuffs were off. Right? I could finally just like I could fly. 
And so given um, the responsibility to, to, to follow my instincts, to do what I could do to cover this community, it had always kind of been a dream and a career in the making. I always wanted to make sure that I was always telling our stories um, because I am here because of those who came before me, right? So right. to me, to be in position um, to do what I wanted to do and to tell the stories that, that were important to me and my community, um, it meant everything. So arriving at that day uh, when I first got hurt word of, of the killing of Trayvon Martin, right. a 17-year-old young man armed with nothing but Skittles and an Arizona iced tea, um, and knowing that I was that 17-year-old young man that had a hoodie once, right, and that could have been me, that kind of uh, further fueled my desire to, to really put this story on the map as best as I could. How do you keep that objectivity covering a story like the Trayvon Martin incident? Well, I think— well, I think what it is is as journalists, uh, we rely on our skills and, and our, our, our bag of tools, right? And so what keeps you objective is the truth and the reality. Um, I don't have to come out here yelling about black men being killed to pull up that number and saying communities just like this, here are the disparities. Uh, here's what happens when um, you, know, you kill a white man and kill a black man and see the disparity in sentencing. We, we can go time and time again about the culture around us and speaking that truth, um, that's what frees us. That's what allows us to tell the stories without getting caught up um, in any kind of nonsense. Now, it's not easy all the time because you, you will have people on either side pulling you, right? Uh, you, you'll have uh, some non-black black folks who say, oh, you can't be impartial because you're black and you come from this community. You'll have some people in our community saying, we need you to tell this story this way, right? Um, but for me, I never felt so much pressure because, trust me, I can tell this story, but let the truth guide you. And the truth is that there are so many disparities in the way that we are treated um, by our fellow citizens, by the criminal justice system, um, and so forth and so on. So it's not easy to speak truth to power without having to feel swayed. Now, um, Part of my experience as a black man in America will definitely lead me to the kinds of stories I want to tell mm-hmm. and, and to go to those places that are, are being ignored. That part guides you. But when it comes down to the actual logistics of the story and sticking to the facts and truth, it's all there. I understand. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with MSNBC correspondent Tremaine Lee. Mr. Lee, what brought you to MSNBC? Well, after uh, the Trayvon Martin case, um, well, during the Trayvon Martin case, actually, um, spending so much time down there in Florida, um, I ended up finding myself on air a bunch. And the opportunity arose again uh, with an organization that was um, establishing and building out their digital wing. So they said, hey, you can come here, continue to tell the stories you want to tell. Um, and while you're at it, you know, come on the panels, talk to some of our, our hosts about um, what you're covering and the stories you're working on. Um, and it just grew from there. You know, so the opportunity to continue to kind of hone my craft as a reporter, tell the stories that I wanted to tell, um, but also add a little something. We always have to stay nimble as journalists, right? right. Do you want the story um, in print? You want it on TV? How do you want that story? So for me, it was like no-brainer. Um, you know, the platform continues to expand to tell these very critical, important stories about life and death, especially in black America. Um, it was a no-brainer. So that's how I landed at MSNBC. You were a part of the cable network's election coverage. Tell us from the start, how did you all go about putting all that information together? I have what I must say is probably um, 
definitely the best job here at MSNBC and possibly in cable news, right? I heard that. So <laughs> as much as much as time as I spent running around the country, um, first as a print reporter in cities all across the country, and uh, then as a, a writer slash uh, TV journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm focused on primetime coverage, right? So I work mm-hmm. primarily with um, All In with Chris Hayes, Lawrence O'Donnell, and AM Joy in the weekends. And I'm tasked primarily with creating packages that um, you know speaks to how policy impacts people in everyday kind of ways, right? Black, white, rural, Republican, Democrat. That's what I'm tasked with doing. So while there are a bunch of great journalists here at MSNBC, um, really covering uh, the horse race, really um, diving into how the sausage is made, I get to actually take my time and mm-hmm. sit on that front step, uh, meet you in that soybean field, and talk about how policy um, impacts folks. So my perspective uh, and the way I approached the midterms was I want to take um, the issue of the day, say it's tariffs, and mm-hmm. let's go to Tennessee and meet with some pig farmers or soybean farmers and talk about how the tariffs are impacting them. In Florida, you had Amendment 4, um, which would have, which actually passed, um, but gave the right to vote to more than a million people who couldn't vote uh, because of a felony conviction, an old vestige of old Jim Crow days when they were trying to uh, keep black folks recently emancipated, you know, unstable and unable to vote, right? So let's mm-hmm. go to Florida and let's talk with some felons um, or formerly incarcerated people who lost their right to vote, what it would mean to them to have uh, the voters of Florida reinstall those rights. Let's go to those places. Let's go to Shelby County, Tennessee, where they elected 20 black women from state legislator to school board to, to, to county clerk to office. Let's talk to these black women about what inspires them and what their presence means to that community. And so for me, I've kind of done what I've always done. I've always considered myself uh, a local reporter. Regardless of how big the platform is, mm-hmm. I'm still tremendously at the Philadelphia Tribune, in the streets, in the community, at your doorstep, knocking on your front door, right? So that was my approach, and so far I think we did a pretty good job of uh, kind of teeing up for folks what this uh, election especially uh, meant to Americans. What did you find this election cycle was really all about from your perspective? I mean, in so many ways, it was a referendum on uh, the, the administration of Donald Trump. So many people across this country have felt the hostility and to say felt like it didn't exist, but uh, some outright hostility, some of the language being used from the White House on. Um, on one side, it's emboldened folks who are hunkering down, saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to not only ride with this man, but this is the hill we're going to die on. Mm-hmm. On the other side, people who care about brown people south of the American border or people who are, are Muslim, uh, people who are gay or transgender or non-binary, black communities, uh, marginalized and vulnerable communities, they said outright that uh, this administration, you know, is really trying to undermine any progress that we've had so far. And so when you go to these places, it was as much about that as going back local, where some uh, politicians hinged themselves to Donald Trump, while others ran away from that. And, and in that space, in that soil, you had some real, especially on the progressive side, some real stars uh, emerge. When you think about uh, Beto down in Texas, you think about Stacey Abrams in Georgia, uh, you think about um, Andrew Gillum in Florida. But you, you saw um, young people between Georgia and Florida, early voting for people under 30 was up 400 percent, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go to communities and you give young people, young people of color especially, or from marginalized communities, um, solid candidates, something they really can get behind and believe in, they will show up. And so, you know, we have two more years until 2020, but this was the first big step in that direction of how are we as Americans going to handle what we've been through um, this administration so far. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a ride, man. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been 
crazy at times, inspiring. In some ways, it kind of reinforced some, some cynicism mm-hmm. because when you look at those folks who say that the system is rigged and then you do have some funny business going on in certain parts of the country in certain elections, it's a lot. According to my research, 239 women ran for Congress, 101 thus far has been elected. What, from your opinion, sparked that, that interest, that surge from, from women to become a part of, of this political process? I mean, on one, just to get it out the way, that's phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to have the most diverse Congress ever. And I think coming off the heels of uh, the Me Too movement, and you think about the spectacle of, of the, uh, the, the Justice Kavanaugh hearings, I think women have been inspired and emboldened. And then just take a step back. What they heard from uh, then-candidate Donald Trump and the, the grab him comments, I think women are finally saying, you know, we've always stood behind the sidelines, especially when you come to, to black and brown women. We, they've played a part in movement building. They've played a, 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 such a significant role in the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts um, that it's time for us to step from behind the curtains, out of the shadows, and lead. Because so many of these women are already leading in their churches. They're leading in their communities in their schools, and in many cases, they're leading in the home. So why not lead in politics, um, especially when there has been an outright assault on uh, their reproductive rights, right, um, and, ongo- and ongoing. So it's, uh, you know, it's time. When you look back at your career thus far and also covering the campaign, what particular stories or individuals that you came in contact with that touched you the most? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um Every phase and every city of my career so far has touched me and changed me in very profound ways. Mm-hmm. I could I can go down the list, but I think one would have to be during that era of uh, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and what we saw in Baltimore and Ferguson mm-hmm. to look into a mother's eyes or a father's eyes and know that their child left one day and never came home, right? Mm-hmm. That pain and then the strength to stand up and have folks rally around them and say, we want change and we want answers. But it was always so tough to look in those eyes because I would see the eyes of my mother and my aunts Mm -hmm. and my uncles and my brother and have to imagine what it would be like for, for me to go and never come home. And then to know that there are no answers, there's no legal recourse in many of these cases, I think that touched me in profound ways, but then also to see how that dislodged so many young people from complacency across this country that stood up and fought Right. And protested and marched and changed the, the texture and complexion in a lot of local races, because, you know, a lot in the criminal justice system falls down in these district attorneys to right. see district attorneys in Ferguson and in Florida and all across the country changing in Chicago based right. on the events that we saw. That was inspiring. But those are just the big cases. But there were so many stories along the way. I can remember one time in, in Trenton, New Jersey, there was uh, a fire that killed a mother and her three little boys. And I remember seeing, being at the funeral, and seeing one big casket and three smaller caskets. Mm. And the sight of that, you know, and I'm an emotional, I'm an emotional guy anyway, because I'm connected to this, right? So I, mm. I start feeling, <laughs> you know, I feel my, my eyes getting a little wet. Um, and even talking about it now, um, come to find out that they were firebombed by some rival gangs that had beef with some folks in the neighborhood. And to see the community stand up, and I covered that story probably a week's worth of front page stories, to see the community respond, not just an outpouring of love and support for this family who lost so much, but standing up 
against the other forces in the community, young men mostly, um, without stable footing, without access to education, and all the thing, all the, the the things that led them to this moment where they're willing to take a life for whatever reason. It's a complicated dance. Is that once they are our brothers and our nephews and our cousins, but they also create a certain dynamic in the neighborhood. But so to see these forces time and again rise up to try to make ourselves whole when we're so wounded by so many systemic issues, those kinds of stories touch me the most. The way we survive and keep pushing and fighting, it's all just so inspirational to me, but it's also my fuel to make sure that you know we're framing our life and our deaths in certain ways, sometimes beyond the white gaze, right? Because we start mm-hmm. thinking about how white folks look at us, that's when the story gets screwed up. But if we stay to true to who we are in our communities and give voice to those of us who've had our voices snatched or silenced, that's all inspirational to me. Mr. Lee, being out there, you know, talking to individuals around the country, how do we get to this particular point in time where the country is so divided? I don't know if we were ever together. Okay. I mean, we, we've lived in a segregated universe, mm-hmm. and especially for black folks since the day we stepped foot here in 1619, Pardon, pardon the way I'm going to say this, but ain't nothing been nice, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think now it's just a matter of the politics colliding with itself once again. But we, we've never been whole, right? We, okay. we've been, the, the beautiful thing about America is this idea that we're always in pursuit of a more perfect union, right? We're always trying to get there. Uh, the mechanics of the Constitution allow for some wiggle room to try to perfect you know, our society and our culture, right? On the other side, to me, it always goes back to a fight for resources, right? The tribes are fighting for resources. So who has the most money and power? Who has uh, the, the armed wings of the government at their disposal, right? We're seeing a fight for resources here. As the complexion and demographics of this country changes, you're going to see people hunkering down. That's why we see white nationalists and white supremacists coming out of the woodwork, Right. Because they, they see that the browning of this country, are we going to open up uh, the, the southern border somehow? Are we going to have brown Muslims coming in? Are we seeing black folks and Latinos and Hispanics, um, you know, outpopulating us? Mm-hmm. Because soon they're going to be the minority. Right. So we're right. seeing a hunkering down. So I think this is clearly a result of that. So, I mean, I don't know if we're any more divided. I think it's more visible now. And I think for many folks, the stakes are, are just that much higher. Was there a learning curve going from print to broadcast that you had to undertake? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. You know, when I was a kid, a grade school kid, my mother would look me in the eye and say, I am, and i say somebody, right? Okay. So I've always had a profound confidence <laughs> in myself. You know, my mom told me I am somebody, and I believed her, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, so I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't that hard to, to get the swing of things because I'm still being myself. I'm still going out there and telling these stories. Um, and now you could just see it. So when I'm connecting with people, instead of writing in my notepad, you know, I'm spilling it for the world to see. The toughest part, I think, which took some time for me, and I'm still learning, is that, you know, writing for print and writing for television is different, right? So as in print, I could uh, create a beautiful prosy lead, right? I can give you a a nice quote uh, as a second paragraph and Mm -hmm. then have a nice nut graph that kind of explains it, and then I reinforce it down from the nut graph on. In TV, it's like it's the visual element, and you can't write. If you don't have the pictures, exactly, <laughs> right? Exactly. And, and and in print, you know, I could put the the weight on my own shoulders. I find the person, uh, the sources I'm talking to. I craft this thing. I bounce it off the editor, fix what they need, getting fixed. And now it's done. With TV, I'm out there on that sofa still talking to this woman. They're like, "All right, stop. Get the lights right. Mm-hmm. Stop. Got to fix the tape." <laughs> then we got four big dudes off of somebody's living room. Right? It just changes it. So I've had to learn um, to 
stick with stick with the program, you know, still do what I always do and just build in some patience that um, I can't do this alone because I need my, my field producer. I need the um, executive producer to, to feel me and believe in the story I'm trying to tell. I need to make sure that the lead-in that um, uh, a segment producer is going to write for Chris Hayes, uh, the host, into my package is right. Mm-hmm. It's a team effort. Make sure the sound is right. Make sure that the, um, the visual elements and the cameraman or camerawoman is doing their thing. It's a whole different ballgame in terms of the team aspect, but the fundamentals are still there. Do you care about the way people live and die? Do do you want to tee up and and put some context to the systems that control our lives, right? Tremaine Lee, correspondent for MSNBC. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.